Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 14, unless you... aren't there, then go ahead and turn to Mark 14. Ken read our text for this morning. Start off our message. I'm going to tell you a parable that Christ told, and it's the parable you are probably very familiar with, the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that story? The first we see in this scene that Jesus gives us is you have a son who despises his father, we don't know why. Maybe he didn't like the rules of the house. Maybe he didn't like how his father was running the house. Maybe just it was his, the father's mannerisms. But he didn't like his father, and he wanted to do his own thing. And so the Bible says that he went to his father and asked for his inheritance, which in that society was kind of like saying, I wish you were dead, Dad. Give me the money now, and I'm going to take off and not see you again. And so basically it was he was dishonoring his father and rejecting him completely. So his father granted him his desire, gave him the money. The boy ran off and wasted his money, lived a sinful, wicked life. And until everything ran out, his money ran out, his friends ran out, his opportunities ran out. And the next scene we have of him is, is of him sitting among pigs and he's eating the garbage from the farmer. And he recognizes his life is in a really bad place. And he actually could be in a better place if he was just even the servant of his father. And so he had this idea of going back to his father and, and not asking to be a son restored, but actually just saying if he could be a regular servant, maybe have a meal a day. So he goes back to his father and he finds his father with open arms and embraces him, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger. And actually that signifies that he has the rights of being a son. And he, he restores him. He, he reconciles with his son and and even more than that, he takes a, a fatted calf and he sacrifices it. The blood pours out. He calls people in the community to come and to celebrate. And there they sat around a table. And that table represented that father made a promise to his son. You are no longer not a son. You are now restored to being a son with the full rights to the inheritance that I still have. And he communicated to the, to the community that they were reconciled, they were in fellowship, and he was at peace with his son. Now you might ask, why do you tell a story like that when we're talking about the Lord's table? That's what we have down here. That's the talk, topic for our sermon this morning. Well, this is really a wonderful picture, actually, of the Lord's table. We're, today we're looking at the promises of, of the, the Passover and also the promises from the, the Lord's table. And one of the promises of the Lord's table is the promise of reconciliation. And like that father reconciled with his son and he promised peace with him and sonship and fellowship, God offers reconciliation to those who believe in him. When you believe in Jesus, he makes you a son or a daughter through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. And at the table of the Lord, we sit and we, we actually symbolize that we're at peace and fellowship with God, that we are now reconciled with God. So the table of the Lord actually is pictured wonderfully there in the story of the prodigal son. And in Mark chapter 12, verses 
25, uh, 12 uh, through 25, or I'm sorry, 14, 12 through 25 is what uh, Ken read for you. And that's our text for this morning. So let's do this. Before we get into our major points here, let's go to the Lord and let's ask his blessing upon the teaching and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as the God who is merciful, who is gracious, who is loving, who reconciles, who restores. So God, will you, will you help us in this room to understand the word of God this morning? Not my ideas, not Ben's ideas, but your ideas. That's the most important thing. May we understand it, and then may we trust you, and we believe you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're studying three promises. The three promises from the Passover, which Jesus turned into a memory, a remembrance of his death for us, we call the Lord's table. And last week, we looked at the first promise, and that was the promise of redemption. The word redemption was used of a slave Uh, having his freedom purchased by someone, and the payment was satisfied by by someone, and the payment was satisfied to the slave's master. So you could say when a a slave was was purchased and then given freedom, that he was redeemed. Redemption means to to purchase. Uh, Redemption means... uh, so small, I can't even see it up there. It's a promise, sorry, that God, that Christ's sacrificial work has purchased peace and fellowship with him. And so last week we learned that in the old covenant that God made with Israel, that they could have reconciliation or they could have redemption with him through the blood sacrifice. And the Passover was represented through the uh, spotless lamb. And that, that sacrifice that they, that they had on that day was a temporary assurance for that family that their sin was forgiven and God would withhold his wrath for sin. And last week we looked at how God has given us a new covenant. Christ introduced a new covenant he has made with us and he purchased that covenant with his own blood, with his life on the cross. And and Christ's sacrifice gives each believer who believes in him, eternal assurance. So the old covenant was really a temporary one for that time. But Christ's sacrifice gives us the assurance of the eternal promise that our sins are forgiven and God will not, uh, his wrath, I should say, is satisfied once and for all. I was thinking that this is kind of like a a teenager that goes to buy a car. You think about a teenager going to a dealership and maybe wants a car and so he wants to buy a brand new car, which I wouldn't recommend if you're a teenager, but he wants to buy a brand new car. And, and his father puts down a down payment, which gives him the car, but it's only a temporary assurance, right? But then let's say the father comes by later and he actually pays for the car in full. That's, that's a permanent fixed guarantee that he owns that car. So we live now in the assurance of the, the new covenant. And we celebrate that at the Lord's at the Lord's table. The next promise that we're going to look at today, and this is really the next really main promise, we're going to stay on this one pretty much the whole time. And that is the promise of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring two people together in peace and in fellowship. It's bringing two people who are, are at odds with each other, who maybe are enemies, 
And then they are resolving their problems and they come together in peace. They have unity. They have friendship. And so at the Lord's table, there's a promise here of of reconciliation. It's a promise that because of Christ's work on the cross, we now have peace with God. So there's, so there's no more fear of condemnation for our sin. We have peace. We're at peace with God. But even more than that, we have fellowship with Christ. We're actually able to have a relationship with him. And it's, it's ongoing. It continues on even past this life into the next. And so, so the promise of redemption was a look back at what Jesus has done for us. It's really faith in Christ's past work. And then the, the promise of reconciliation is really the promise that we are now reconciled to the Lord. It's faith in Christ's present work where he, he continually advocates for us before the Father. So we, as we look at the text here and we look at the Passover meal, as we talked about last week, we talked about how the Passover meal was, was really a fulfill of, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ's death on the cross. He said, this, this is the Passover lamb, and he presented himself as the Passover sacrifice. In fact, would you, do with, would you go with, back with me to Exodus chapter 12? Go back to Exodus chapter 12. I want to show you in this passage in Exodus how, how God really use this Passover meal to illustrate what Christ has done for us on the cross and also what he's given to us, and that is reconciliation. So Exodus chapter 12, Genesis, first book of the Bible, then Exodus. And in Exodus 12, we find Israel is enslaved to the Egyptians. If you remember the story, despite God's constant warnings through, through Moses, the Egyptians will not let Israelites go and Moses would tell Pharaoh and the Egyptians let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh and the Egyptians said no. And so God sent judgment after judgment to them. And finally, in Exodus chapter 12, God one last time has said to them, let my people go. Pharaoh has said no. And so God is sending a judgment upon them. And this is a judgment of death. The firstborn and every family in Egypt will die. Look down in Exodus 12, in verse 12. This is the judgment from God upon the land of Egypt. In verse 12, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So who li- lived in the land of Egypt? Well, the Jewish people and the Egyptian both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So you can see the judgment of God and of whom it is upon. And so who was God judging here in verse 12? You look at verse 12. Who is he judging? Well, he says all the gods and really those who worshipped those gods and didn't submit to the Lord as God. So what you see in this text on that night, it is the Lord himself who executes judgment and passes over homes and the firstborn in those homes die. In fact, look in Exodus 12, 12. He says, for I will pass through the land. And if you go through this passage over and over, you will see that the Lord himself is the one who is going to pass over and execute this judgment. In fact, look down in verse 29. You can see where that takes place. At midnight, the Lord 
struck down. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now, you might be thinking back to Sunday school, and you think, well, wasn't it the death angel that did that? I didn't know it was the Lord. Wasn't it? Didn't the death angel do that? So where, where does that come from, the idea that there was a death angel? Well, if you look down in, in actually verse 23, you see this idea of a death angel. In verse 23, it says, The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, we'll get to that in a second, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Now, so, so there's some type of destroyer that God is going to allow or not allow to bring death. Where does that come from? Well, you don't have to turn there. You can just listen to me read it. But there's a couple passages that allude to this. One, it's pretty clear, is in Psalm 78, 49, says that the Lord let loose his burning anger, his wrath, his indignation and distress, a company of destroying Angels, And in verse 51, it says, and he struck down every firstborn in Egypt. So, so what you see here in this text is that God is allowing some type of, of death angels to, to execute the judgment for sin upon the people in, in Egypt. Now you're saying, like, what does that look like? Like, what does that look like even in our time when someone dies? What, what happens there? And, and I'll confess, I don't actually, I have some ideas on it, and I'm not going to go into it right now. I don't know what's behind, really, the, the, the veil of this material world, what kind of happens with all that. But this, very clear here, God is actually making decisions, and then he's allowing some kind of death angels to carry that out. And what's my point here? What's, what am I, why am I talking about this? And that is... Because God caused judgment to fall upon these people who were sinful by means of death. And I think when you read something like this, it's good to remind ourselves that God's ultimate and its final judgment for sin is is death. We don't like to talk about death, do we? But but death is, is separation, isn't it? It's separation from those here on earth. It's physically separating from our bodies. But also it's separation from God forever in eternity. And there will be a day that each one of us will face this. We will, we will die if, if the Lord tarries. It's coming. And now, again, you, you look at something like this and you might say to yourself, like, but do angels come and claim our souls? Is that, is that what happens, you know? And again, I, I don't exactly know what you see stuff like this, and you go, well, I wonder how that all works. But I do know this, that every soul in here has an appointment of death. If the Lord tarries is coming. It happened to every firstborn in Egypt, except for whom? Uh, from whom of whom did God say, I'm not going to allow judgment to come upon them? It was for those families that demonstrated faith in the lord that faith was demonstrated by the killing of a passover lamb and they took the blood of that lamb and they put it on the lintel and the doorposts of the house and in those homes that lamb died in the place of the firstborn that the blood was a sign that the home was trusting in the lord in fact look down in verse 13 when the lord passed 
that home. He saw their faith, and the blood was the guarantee that he would keep that promise. In verse 13, the Bible says, The blood shall be a sign, notice what it says, for you. For you. So for whom was the blood a sign? It was for the people in the house. It wasn't like God was like, which house down there needs the, oh, that one has blood. No, God could see their hearts. And what he was looking for were people who had faith in him, who were, who were trusting him. So the blood was a sign for them that they're saying, I trust in the Lord. So it was a sign for their house. And the Bible says there, the sign, it shall be a sign for you on the house where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And sometimes we can think about those Jewish homes like that. And we can think, well, well, did they not deserve to have judgment upon them? Were they better than the Egyptians? Maybe, maybe the reason why God didn't allow their firstborn in, in, in the Jewish homes to die was because they're Jewish. No, he likes them more than the Egyptians. Isn't that, is that, isn't that what it is? Sometimes we can think that way. But you know, can I tell you, that's not the case. That's not what the text is saying here. Every firstborn in Egypt were going to die except for those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus. So it was because of the Lord that they, their firstborn were, were saved. They trusted the promise that God would not apply judgment due to them, upon them, but he would apply it to that animal. When death comes knocking on our doors, those who, who have lived their life like those Egyptians, just rejecting the Lord, doing whatever they want to do, the Bible says that they will have their souls snatched up into eternal separation from God forever, eternal death. But those who are believing in the Lord Jesus will be taken to be with the Lord as his children. So when we think about the, the, the juice down here and the bread down here, when we think about that juice, we look at that, the, the, the blood, which is, it's not actually blood, right? But we, I, we think of the blood of Jesus and that's the sign. It's kind of like, it's a guarantee. What's it a guarantee? That God promises that our sins are forgiven. It's the, the sign of the covenant God has with us. And one of the promises that God has for us is a promise of reconciliation. You can think about it too when you think about the Passover meal. All those outside of the homes, the Egyptians who, who did not come into covenant with God, who did not trust the Lord, they were living outside of fellowship with God. They were not at peace with God. They felt the, the wrath of God come upon their home because of sin. But those who trusted the Lord had the peace from God, had, had really fellowship with the Lord there that night. And so there was a symbolism around that table that they sat around as a family. And the symbolism was this, that God promises peace for us. He promises fellowship with us. You could say it this way. He promises reconciliation for our, our family because we are trusting that his blood is the one that covers our sins. And, and if you go to the Middle East and you go to some societies that are a little bit more relational, you'll kind of see this idea about a table being a place where people come in fellowship. People come for reconciliation. They come around a table and they, they enjoy fellowship with friends and with family. In fact, in the ancient culture, to eat at a table with someone that that meant you were friends. And if you ate with someone that was your enemy, that would, well, I should say it this way, that would be unheard of to ever sit down with someone that was your enemy at a table. Because there was a picture there that you were 
in fellowship with those people. In fact, if you ever were going to come to a place where you had a problem with someone and you wanted to reconcile it, you would picture to everyone around you and to that person that you were forgiving them, that you were reconciling them with them by sitting at a table and eating. And so in many cultures, actually, the table that you sit around is actually a picture. It's a symbol of fellowship. It's a symbol of, of reconciliation or unity. I think it's kind of difficult for us sometimes as Americans to picture that because we're a very very task-oriented society. You know, when we think about uh, the day and what we got to do, we put on our list different things, and one of those things is to eat, right? And so we think about, I got to do lunch. So that's one of the things I got to do. Sometimes we don't even put it on our list, so therefore we don't even do it. But that's, that's why we go to, out to eat. You know, to places like, well, I won't advertise for them. I've already done that enough today. But places in the community that are fast food, we eat junk, right? Because we just got to get that off our list. We got to do that. But actually, in societies like this, they actually meet for a different purpose around a table. Yeah, they're eating food, but it's actually for probably a a bigger purpose for them and a greater purpose, and that is for fellowship. It's how they talk to each other. It's how so they can sit around a table for ten minutes or ten minutes for for an hour, for two hours, for three hours, and they can sit there and just talk and talk. And actually, it's more about enjoying time with each other. I actually think when I you know, when you talk about these kind of cultures and things, it's actually good for us sometimes to glean good things from places like that, cultures like that. I think we should probably do more of that as American society. You know, you go to a restaurant in town or um, you go to a fast food or something, and everyone can actually uh, be sitting at a table across from people but not talking to anyone in there, right? Because everyone has their device and they're going, you know. Or you go into the average American home and they have this big TV up there and this is how they eat their food right in front of there. It's actually good just to turn everything off like get a table, sit around it, and say like the next 45 minutes to an hour, we're doing nothing but sitting here and eating. Now, some of you are like, oh, people do that? Yes. Okay. We, we've done that. We do that all the time throughout the week. And sometimes we've been known to sit around the table a little too long. Um, and, uh, but it's a fun time to do that with your family. I would encourage you, if you have grandchildren, do it with your grandchildren. If you have little children, do it with your little children. Teach them to sit around a table like that. Uh, I would encourage you to have people in your home and do that. There's, there's some, some great conversations you can have about the Lord just sitting around a table and talking with people. So I think there's some things like that that we should probably consider. But this was a, an important picture for the, for the people of the first century to sit around a table like this. In fact, still to this day, over in the Middle East, there are times when families might have conflict and they come together for something they call the table of Peace. It's actually known in the Middle East as the meal of Sula, which means peace. Sula means peace. And so, in fact, I was looking on this website. It's called sulapeaceproject.com. And it's a 10-year effort by local Jews and Palestinians to, to once a year go away, and they will sit down at a table, and they'll eat together, and they do it to picture that they want to reconcile with their two communities. So, you know, if you could say, what are two societies that are at most war in our, in our world today? And you'd say Palestinians and Jews. And there's actually an organization that's trying to make peace between them. And so that's an interesting fact right there. Actually, if you go through the scriptures, you can see these, these, these fellowship uh, reconciliation meals taking place throughout the scriptures. And then once you start, once you understand this, then you start reading through the scriptures and you're like, oh, wow, these are all over the place. For instance, in, in Exodus chapter I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 26, you see this between Isaac and Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. 
in Exodus 24, you see God doing this with his people. He makes a covenant with his people. There's a sacrifice. The blood is sprinkled on the people. And then what do they do after that? They have a meal, which represents the peace and the fellowship that God wants to have with his people. Exodus 25, you see in the tabernacle, God commands them to have this table that has bread put on it every week. And that, that bread represents that God wants to have fellowship with his people. In the New Testament, we have stories like the prodigal son. You can see that idea that we want reconciliation. So we have a sacrifice, then we have a meal. There's usually agreements that go along with that. And, and that, that's sometimes why the, the Pharisees were so scandalized by what Jesus was doing. You know, it's like, He's sitting with sinners and tax collectors, which means what? He must be at peace with them. He must be in fellowship with them, which means, therefore, he must be like them. And so that's it's kind of their thinking. So this, this table of Passover was a great symbol that pictured temporary reconciliation with God. But now we have the Lord's table, and this is a picture of permanent reconciliation with God for those who believe in Jesus. So go back to Mark chapter 14. I know we're kind of spending some time in some other passages. Hope you're okay with that. Jesus is here that now at the table of the Passover meal, the table of reconciliation, the table of fellowship. And remember, this is picturing that they are in unity together. They're in fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. But it's interesting that Jesus identifies two problems at this table. Do you remember what those problems were? One was with Judas, who was the betrayer. The other one was with Peter and the disciples who were about to disown him. In fact, other gospels even tell us that at that table, the disciples were arguing who was the greatest, which was a great offense to the picture of that table. So Jesus pointed out these divisions. Look in verse 17. In verse 10, the Bible says that G Judas already plotted to betray Jesus. And then verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the 12. And as they were, were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. So we're in fellowship with each other and fellowship with the Lord. And they began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. There is one who is acting as if he's in fellowship with God and in fellowship with us, but actually he's a betrayer. Now, Jesus knows everything, right? He knows all the hearts of us in here. He knew all the hearts of those men. He knew that Judas was a betrayer. Think of the love that Jesus has at this moment to confront Judas. Even though the disciples didn't know who it was, that's why they ask in verse 19, is it I? Is it I? They don't know. It's Judas. But think of the love Jesus has to confront Judas's sin. Here Judas was given an opportunity to repent, to turn, and to seek forgiveness in Christ. And what does Judas choose? What does he choose? He chooses to keep pretending to hide his sin to keep pretending as if he was in fellowship with with god and with them as he kept eating with them so verse 21 the bible says for the son of man jesus said goes as it is written of him what what's that speaking of the old testament prophecies that said that jesus the son of man was going to 
die and for our sins. And then he says, but woe to the man. And listen to this. Woe to the, that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. So Judas. So he says Judas without saying Judas's name. Listen to this. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What a statement that is. Jesus alluded here to the condemnation of Judas. He, we should probably read this and think about this with, with, with seriousness and sobriety. He will face an eternity of damnation and separation for his sin. But at that table, Jesus identifies to Judas that there's sin in his heart. But he rejected the Lord. So from Mark 14, we can see this really important warning that comes from the Lord's table. The table is a time to remember the promise of reconciliation. God is in fellowship with us who believe in him. He has, he's at peace with us. But also it's a time to remember a warning. If you're not reconciled to God, you will face judgment. And it would, would be better for you to never be born than to live your life, reject the Lord, and face separation from him forever. Paul gives a similar warning in 1 Corinthians. In fact, would you just flip over there real quickly to, to see that 1 Corinthians. Paul reminds the church that Christ commanded the church to use the Lord's table to remember his death. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 as well, but 1 Corinthians in chapter 10 is where we first see it here in the epistle. And in this passage, he uses an interesting word here. It's the Greek word koinonia, which means fellowship or to partner or to kind of share your life with. And so we see it here translated as uh, participation. Sometimes people uh, translate it as communion or fellowship. Look at verse 16 of chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He says, the cup of blessing... So that's the the cup that we will partake of in a moment. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation or, this is the word koinonia, which is communion or fellowship. Is it not fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not fellowship, communion in the body of Christ? So Paul describes this table as a place of, of fellowship with the Lord as we remember his death. And the table is a place to remember that reconciliation and, and really to celebrate it, to enjoy it. And look in verse 17. He says, because there is one bread. So who's the bread? That's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the bread of life. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So Paul here is referring to the church. So there's one bread, Jesus. We as a church are unified around Jesus, that one bread. For we all partake of that one bread. So what you see here is this fellowship with God as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And we see fellowship with each other and we're all a part of the same body of Christ. And then he goes on and talks more about this in in verse 21, the table of the Lord versus the table of demons. You could read that and study that yourself. But now now go over to chapter 11 and verse 17 because he kind of continues this, this thread, this idea through the book of 1 Corinthians and he He stops here in verse 17 and kind of speaks more 
about the Lord's table, gives some instructions regarding it. In verse 17, he says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, so speaking of as a church coming together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, can you imagine someone describing that, our church like that, our church service? Like, it's actually not good for you guys to get together here. Think about what was going on in that church to be able to say that. Verse 18, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So Paul points out that there are people in the church who are are out of fellowship with, with one another. Now, can I say, can I say this to us that, that problems in the church are not just a 21st century lighthouse Bible church problem. Sometimes people get shocked, you know, in a church, they go, I can't believe there's problems in a church. Every church has problems. Do you know why? Because every church is full of you and me, sinners, <laughs> who are saved by the Lord and growing in, to be more like him, but are definitely not like him. And the question is not if there are going to be problems in the church. The question is, will you seek reconciliation? Will you seek to restore the peace and the fellowship with, with those other believers? When I was in South Carolina, I was a pastor there for 14 years. And over the years, all the time, I would sit down with people. It was a pretty large church. There's many people that would come in and, and then leave for whatever reason. And you would hear people's reasons why um, they left. And sometimes um, they gave you reasons like, you know, I'm not being fed or I don't like the music or I don't like the programs or whatever it was. There's different reasons people gave. And, but I would say the most common reason that people gave whether they said it at first or not, okay? But the most common reason were problems with other people. And there could have been some of those other things going on, but just in general, you know, what is it, 70, 80, I don't know what percentage it would be, but most of the people, it was because they had some kind of problem with someone in the church. And when we have problems with people, what do we tend to want to do? Like, just flee, Get out of there. I don't want to be with them anymore. I'm separated from them in relationships. So I'm going to separate from them in person. So we typically deal with problems by, by running. Maybe before that, we hold a grudge against someone or we gossip about them. We mock that person or we complain about them. Or, But he said there's, there's divisions. So Paul said, this is going to happen. This is actually happening with your church right now. And so Paul's solution is to do what? Everyone should just leave that church. Is that what he's saying? No, he's saying like, you should reconcile. <laughs> That's actually a really important thing. And so as the pastor, let me plead with you this. If you have a problem with someone, seek reconciliation. Seek reconciliation. Now, all you can do is your part. You have to trust God for the rest. But please seek that in the Lord Jesus. And look down in verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Paul points at out that though they keep the Lord's Supper in form, they were not keeping the spirit of it. And what is the spirit of the Lord's table? It's reconciliation. It's fellowship with one another, with the Lord. And so he gives a warning. Look down in verse 27. He gives a warning. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Let's just stop right there. What does that mean? An unworthy manner manner. Well, I think it refers back to what this church was doing, which they were living in, uh, had a church of division. They were fighting with each other in whatever way that looked like. They were, you could say like this, they were like Judas, where they acted like they were in fellowship with each other and fellowship with God. So they took 
partook of the Lord's table, but inside there were a lot of divisions with other people. So in verse 27, what does he say? He says that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, listen to this, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? To read something like that. When you're out of fellowship with God and with other people, you're actually sinning against the point of Jesus' death for us. He died to reconcile us to God and to each other. So what's the warning here? If you act like you're in fellowship with God and with other people, particularly when you take the Lord's table, I don't think it's just the Lord's table. I think it's in general. When you come to church and you act like you're in fellowship, but you're really not, you're actually, you're actually putting yourself in a place of judgment. And what is the judgment? What does it say? He says, there's sick people, there's death around you. Like, what does that mean? And honestly, I don't know. But I know this. I don't want to find out. <laughs> like, it means something. I'll tell you that right now. I know a pastor that told me once, he says, every time I go to the hospital and visit someone, I ask them if they have any sin in their life. I'm like, uh, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so I would never do that, just so you know. I don't think it's probably the best time to talk to someone about that. But his point was, it's something to think about. The, his point was, maybe something's going on in their life and they need to turn to the Lord. And maybe now's the opportunity to talk to them about that. I, I feel a bit, maybe um, a little more sensitive to that. But it's something to consider for us. I don't think we should look at every problem, every sickness, every death as, you know, relating to some sin. Oh, what was sin was in their life. That's not the point he's making here, right? Because the blood of Jesus covers us, forgives us from all sin. So we, we have uh, confidence that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But, but the warning is this here. If you're out of fellowship with the Lord and out of fellowship with other, someone else, stop pretending like you're in fellowship and God loves you enough that he's going to get a hold of you. And he might love you enough to get a hold of you by taking you home to heaven so you can stop hurting his church. When I was growing up, my dad told us, he said, when you were born, I prayed for you that you would grow up and serve the Lord with your life. And I prayed that if you, if you weren't going to do that with your life, trust the Lord and, and follow him, that I want you to die an early death so you could be with him. And honestly, when you're a child, you go, oh, my. <laughs> That'll straighten you up pretty quickly. But then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, at first you go, does he really love me, you know? But I was like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, he said that because he loves me. And he would rather me be with the Lord Jesus as, an, as a child that I believe children, when they die at a young age, are with the Lord, than grow up, reject the Lord, and be separated from him, from him forever. So the kindest thing God could do for you is to get your attention. So the question we probably should ask at this moment is what? Are you in fellowship with the Lord Jesus? Are you in fellowship with, with one another in this room? I can remember one time I 
I think I've told this before, but I was in Wisconsin at Brookside Baptist when I was a, a student up there and a member of the church, and uh, the pastor was preaching, Dean Taylor, and I remember being convicted of something I had said to my father on the phone at one point. I don't remember what I said. I just remember it was very disrespectful, and they're about to you know, pass the plates back, and the guy's coming closer and closer to get to me, and, and my, the Lord just kept pricking my heart more and more, and so at that moment, I took that plate, and I, I passed it down, and I didn't take it, and I stood up, and I thought, I got to go make this right with the Lord and my dad, and so I went out to the car, and and I had a cell phone, very rare back then, but cost me minutes, cost me some money, but it was worth it. I called my dad, told him I was sorry, and then talked to the Lord. What a burden was lifted off of me. I think that's the point that, that Paul's making here is reconcile, reconcile, and are you in fellowship with one another? Look down in verse 14, or sorry, go back to Mark 14. We'll finish up Mark 14 and verse 22. At some point before the Lord introduced the the new meaning of the Lord's table, Judas left to betray him. So Judas was not here for this time. In verse 22, the Bible says, And as they were eating, he took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And that last verse, verse 25, we find the promise, the last promise that God gives to them. That is the promise of rest, the promise of rest. The promise of rest, the promise that God promises that we will forever abide in peace and in fellowship with him. You see that in verse 25. He says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus refused to drink the cup anymore until a future day that he would be with his disciples. He would be with those for whom he died. Think about that. Jesus is about to go through a lot of pain and suffering. And for the disciples, they're going through years of of toil and persecution. But Jesus promised that there's a day when it's all going to end. There's there's a rest that's going to take place. We're going to sit down and we're going to eat with him. We're going to drink with him. We're going to fellowship with him. We're going to enjoy eternity with him. Let me me point out that Jesus was not speaking metaphorically here about a future day. He drank a real cup. Like when he was there, and I keep going like this, it's actually a cup, right? He he was drinking a real cup and and he really said, I mean, he really put that cup down and said, I'm not going to drink again from this cup until I drink of a cup in the future kingdom, which means what? There's a physical cup that Jesus someday will pick up and drink, which means what? Eternity with Jesus is actually a physical, real reality. It's not some clouds and you're floating some spirit across space, okay? If you have that picture in your mind, get it out of your mind. Picture what Jesus wants us to picture here, and that is us sitting down with him 
speaking to him. Jesus will retain his physical form, his physical body for eternity, and we will fellowship with him. Now, now why did Jesus make this promise, you think? I think it was to give the disciples hope. They're going to go through a lot of problems, a lot of trials, but he wanted to give them hope that there's a day of rest where he will be with them again. And how many times do you think they thought back to this? And how many times during times of persecution and times of difficulty, they think, okay, there's a time we're going to be with Jesus and we can fellowship with him. I told you last week that there were four ceremonial cups. Remember that? And the Passover meal. And they come from Exodus chapter 6. And and the third one was the cup of redemption, which is the one that Jesus used for communion here. And the fourth was called the cup of the kingdom. Of course, the Bible doesn't clearly tell us this here. But we believe that this was probably the cup that he's referring to in here when he talks about the cup of the kingdom. In fact, if you listen to this passage, listen to Exodus 6. Seven. This is the cup that they would have remembered, the fourth cup. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. So the Jewish people called that the cup of the kingdom, when they get to be with the Lord forever. So I want you to imagine Jesus there. He takes this cup. All the disciples are anticipating drinking from this cup of the kingdom, where God is going to take us to be his God, and we're going to celebrate that promise. He takes this. He holds it up. Maybe he blesses it. And maybe even quotes the passage, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And then he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Think of the suspense of that promise. Like this is the cup that promises that we will be with God forever. And he says, I'm waiting to drink it with you guys in the kingdom. So we remember the promise of rest. Hebrews 4, 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Speaking of eternity with God. Each time we, we partake of this table, we remember that Jesus has a dinner reservation for us. And it's on the other side in eternity. So God has promised us redemption. That is that our sins are paid in full. He, he's promised us reconciliation. We can have peace with God. If you're in Christ, you don't need to fear judgment and death. You have fellowship with God. You're able to every day talk to him and walk with him, read his word, have, have an ongoing fellowship and communion with him. And then he promise, uh, promises us rest. That's in the future. We look by faith to that. We're given peace and fellowship at the cross. We enjoy peace and fellowship now. and We look forward to peace and fellowship forever. And when you think about death, we've talked a lot about death. But when you think about it, what do you think about? How, how does that make you feel, if you could say it that way? This past week, I woke up. I don't know what, what day it was, but one, of the, one night, probably about 3 or 4 in the morning. And usually I wake up and have these, the strangest thoughts, you know, or the greatest fears. You ever had that where you're like, Something is due the next day or something's going to happen. And you, but I woke up and I thought, what if I were to die? Now, that's not something I normally think about, okay, in the middle of the night. I thought, what if I were right now to die? And I instantly actually became sad because I thought, oh, I didn't get to say goodbye to my kids, my wife. But then I started thinking about, it's, at night you don't have the clearest thinking, right? <laughs> so I was thinking, wait a second, I shouldn't be thinking that. 
And I was like, then I started thinking about what it would be like to be with Jesus in heaven. And then I started to get excited. Like, this is, that's going to be great. That's going to be wonderful. When you think about eternity, when you think about death, are you afraid? I mean, does, does it cause you to, to have regret? Oh, no, I don't want to go now. Or do you actually anticipate the promise of the Lord that you get to be with him? Jesus says, I want to have fellowship with you. I want to have fellowship with you now. I want you to believe in me. I want you to have peace now so that we can have fellowship and peace forever in eternity. The Bible says this, behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you're in here without Christ, you're out of fellowship with Christ. Listen, he's knocking. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. What does Jesus want from you? He wants you to trust him. And he wants fellowship with you. But friend, if you just live your life and and don't trust in the Lord and you reject him, there's no fellowship now. There's no peace now. And And the Lord promises in the future that there's forever condemnation, forever separation. So that's why Jesus says, come, come and believe in me. Would you bow your heads and come before the Lord? prayer messages like this have typically two applications and one is for those who are not believers in christ for those who are not christians maybe your person here you say pastor ben i have never put my faith in the lord jesus christ i invite you in your seat right now to tell him Recognize, I'm a sinner, Lord, and confess that to him. Confess, I have rejected you. The Bible says if we call upon the name of the Lord, that he will save us. And so you just call upon him and say, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I believe that you died and rose for me. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. It's not by your works, it's not by your own doing, it's by the gift of God. And if you're without Christ, would you just call upon him in your seat right now? Maybe you're in here and you're, you're a believer in the Lord and you're like, yeah, I got some things to settle with the Lord. You can do that right now in your seat. You can talk to him. Remember, for believers, he says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. So you don't need to go out and, you know, rake three old ladies' yards for forgiveness. You can just ask him right now, confess. He forgives. Maybe you're in here and you're out of fellowship with someone else and you need to go before the Lord right now. Talk to him about that. Maybe after this service, you need to go talk to them about that. And ask the Lord for strength to do that. Father, we're so thankful for the clarity of the word of God that tells us how you have worked on the cross through Christ, how you are working now, And some individuals in here, you're working a work of salvation. So God, I pray that you'll confirm that for them. And for those of us who are Christians, the work is of continually reconciling us to Christ. That's just the the work of being our, our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And So thank you 
Jesus, that we have the confidence that we always have fellowship. We always have peace with you. And then we have the work, the future work, where you come for us. So we believe you, God. We believe in you, Jesus. And we give our life to you. In Jesus' name.